And uh, if you're new here this morning, welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here with us, and um, we're glad that you came. And uh, I do have a few announcements. We do have uh, a need for some volunteers in the sound booth, Sundays or Wednesdays, and you may speak to Justin Smith if you're interested. Um, The sound booth is that window back there where that young man is pointing a remote control. You can all look back at him. That's where the sound booth is. And uh, that's a great, you know, just a great way to, to get in and to serve and to volunteer. Um, if you mess up the sound, though, everybody knows about it. That's the, that's the negative to it. But it's, anyway, there's a need back there. So if you're interested in that, don't be intimidated. It's, there's some great guys who treat, you know, train you how, on what to do. Um, the Women's Fall Retreat is coming up in Glen Irie. Mark your calendars for September 16th through the 18th. So that is coming up. Today, there's a, it's in all caps in your bulletin. It says, TODAY. It is due today, $150 um, for the registration and retreat fee. That's going to be an awesome time. Glen Irie, where does, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. It's a beautiful locale. I think I've seen pictures. Yes, Shelly. Only half is due today, and the rest is $75 sometime in August for the remainder of the fee. So they're taking installments. We'll get you on credit. It's good to go. No interest. And we have uh, an announcement here. This is a statewide thing at the Colorado Rockies. They're doing a post-game concert. It's Faith Day up there featuring musical guest Crowder. $23 a ticket, and we're going to have a group from here that's going to go up and be a part of that at the Rockies. That's going to be a great time, too, if you're into baseball or even not, August 7th. And uh, if you're into Crowder or the Rockies, either one. And we have a youth mission trip coming up um, down to Juarez, Mexico, to help with a construction project and ministry work for the needy. That's going to also be in September, September 2nd through the 5th. Um, just a reminder, you do need a passport to get down to Mexico. Like I said last time, that's only if you want to come back. If you just want to go across the border and stay there, you do not need a passport. But you might have trouble getting back. Um, and one last thing, this is not in the bulletin. This is a special announcement. We are going to do an on-high hike on July 30th, uh, that hike that we had to postpone because of all the snow and the weather and everything in Westcliff. Uh, Lake of the Clouds Trail, and I'm going to have a flyer out there next week or maybe even Wednesday night for that. So just think about that. It's a a fairly strenuous hike. It's going to be four or five hours, you know, hiking up and back. It's not anything as uh, extreme as some of the other ones we've done. So anyway, everybody's welcome. We like to keep it middle school and up for that. So that's all the announcements, and I'll just uh, pray, and then we'll get started. So Um, Father, we come to you this morning again. We thank you for just another beautiful day and for the summer season here. And um, Lord, we know a lot of people are traveling today and have been traveling or coming back. And we just lift them up to you and just lift up this season, Lord, of uh, um, the long hours of the day and all the work that we do and everything, Lord. And I pray that we would just work in a way that's, that's pleasing to you and we'd be able to enjoy all the, the time with the kids off in school and and uh, just help us to use this time wisely. And um, Lord, we, we also just thinking about traveling. We lift up Pastor Sean and Autumn and uh, Molly and Megan, their whole family, and just pray as they uh, are headed back here um, this coming week. And we just pray you give them a safe trip and that their flight would be 
you know, wouldn't be delayed or their luggage wouldn't get lost and all those hardships that can come along with traveling sometimes, Lord. And we just pray you'd watch over them and bless them and pray that they would come back refreshed and, and just closer to one another and closer to you. And we look forward to seeing them, Lord. We miss them. And um, God, we lift up our, fa- our fellowship to you, Lord. And um, just the families here, I just want to lift up this morning and we just pray for for the fathers and the, the mothers and the husbands and the wives and all the things that you call us to be in, in our families, Lord, and, and truly that we would serve, look to serve one another in these relationships and that we would um, honor you in these relationships and just help us to, to love and to support one another within our families and even our extended families, Lord. We, we lift up those um, that don't know you and pray that you would continue to use us as lights in their lives and and tonight is is so, we're, it's hard not to sometimes, Lord, but just to write them off and to say it's just it's not worth the effort or it's not worth the time. And I pray you would inspire us and use us in, in the lives of those who don't know you. And uh, Lord, we lift up our, um, just the, the martyrs around the world, those who are giving their lives and, 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 and not even just their lives sometimes, Lord, but that live in fear and live in, um, just constant persecution, those in the Middle East and those in China and um, around the world that we hear about that, that are truly um, suffering for your, for your sake. And we know, Lord, that, that you love them and that you care for them, and we pray for your hand on them and that you would protect them and use them. And um, we just pray for them this morning, Lord, and help us as a church to continue to support missionaries and, and those in those places that can minister to these people and, and reach out to them also. And finally, Lord, we just we lift up our nation, and God, as we, uh, we just, you know, after this horrible tragedy with the police shootings this week, and and just seems like every week something is, something is coming against this nation, against this people here, and, and Lord, we're bringing it on ourselves, and we just pray for a national repentance. We pray that our country would come back to you, and that our leaders, that you would inspire them and, and speak to their hearts and that you would give them wisdom and and uh, Lord we, we just pray again that once again we would be a godly nation that fears you and that serves you and and uh, that we could uh, somehow um, once again Lord be in a place where we can receive your blessings and and we just pray again just um, use us in, in this fallen world that we're in Lord and I just pray as we get into your word that you would um, help us to draw nearer to you, that we would learn of you, that we would um, just see you for who you are, see how different you are from all the things that the world goes after, and um, we love you and worship you in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to be kind of in the book of Micah, and it's interesting, I started out just, I've, I've read that recently, the book of Micah is a prophecy that was written by the prophet Micah, and, um, but you know, I kind of went some other places, and I just kind of let it go where it was going to go, so we are going to be referencing this book, and I, I just want this study, I guess, to kind of serve as a primer, possibly, for you guys to get into this book yourself, and to read through it, and to see kind of how, because it does give us a picture of, of kind of where we're at as a society, and what God has to say to those people that are in such a place as we find ourselves in today, maybe not individually, but nationally. 
And so, again, we're going to be referencing that some other places. And, um, but I'm not necessarily doing a study all on the book of Micah. Um, and I just, again, I want this to kind of serve as maybe an introduction, as a primer for you, to guy, for you guys to... It's a seven-chapter book. It's not a long book. You could probably read it in the time it takes you to check your email or something sometimes, right? So, um, and it's, it's got some heavy stuff in it, but it's got some really encouraging stuff in it, too, as the prophets are, are, apt, are, are apt to do, is to say, here's what's wrong, here's how to fix it, and here's how much I love you, is often kind of how these prophecies go, and... So, but I'm sure many of you, like myself, are disturbed by what we see going around us in our country. You know, every day, like I said, the news is bringing these, these scenes of violence and hatred, and it's, you know, perversity, debauchery. And it seems like our country, and really the rest of the world, is descending quickly into this chaos, ignorance, and darkness, and I'm reminded of that, you know, there was that, the plagues of Egypt, if you remember that, the Israelites suffered. And the second to the last plague that God brought upon the Egyptians right before the Israelites were set free was that plague of darkness, where they couldn't see for three days. And that's what I feel like that's coming upon, not only just our country, but on, on the world. You know, every time we... Uh, like I said, every time you turn on the news, every time you turn on the radio, it's, it's at such a rapid pace these days. And uh, for me, and I'm sure many of you can identify possibly with Lot. We're told Lot, righteous Lot, this nephew of the, you know, Abraham, and who lived in the epitome of wicked cities. When we think of a wicked city, it's epitomized by what? Where did Lot live? Sodom. A city so depraved that the cry against it rose to God's ears, who then sent his angels to utterly destroy it. And I imagine even as that fire and that sulfur rained from heaven on this wicked city, they didn't stop sinning. That they looked up to heaven and they shook their fist at God and they refused to repent right up to the minute where their breath left their lungs and where they were consumed in that horrible judgment. And we know that because our God... Our God, if they would have relented, if they would have repented, if they would have gotten on their knees before God, that he would have changed and not judged that city. Because we're told our God's a God that delights in steadfast love. And that was his desire for those people, and that's the desire for our nation today. We're told in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, that Lot... And we know Lot wasn't perfect, but he's referred to as righteous Lot. That he was, and this is, I love this one from the King James Version, that he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You know, I think... You know, I feel that way sometimes. You guys feel that way sometimes lately where your soul is literally vexed? You know, I read through, um, yeah, I'm just reading the headlines. And just, you know, you're reading the, the stories of these things. And I just, you know, I read a couple stories last week and I thought, why did I read that? You know, it's the news, right? But it's like now it's, you know, it sticks in your head and you become soiled with the stuff that, that, they, that these people are doing out there. And they're reporting it without any discretion or without any filter at all and they say this is just the news and you know I mean we can't even really 
know what's going on sometimes without it vexing us. You know, it's sad to see what was once a God-fearing and morally upright society become what it is today. You know, but I think that maybe Sodom, maybe it wasn't such a bad place at one time. You know, we, we realize what it is, what it became, and that's kind of when we come, but we don't really know anything about it before then. You know, I think maybe it was a nice place to live. I think maybe it was, uh, we're told it was fertile, it was attractive, it was prosperous. You know, probably had good schools, good neighborhood, right? I mean, this is probably why Lot, when he looked over the plain and Abraham said, he said, I'll take whichever land. We can't live together because, you know, it's causing conflict and I don't want that between you and I because I love you. So just choose, choose where you want to go and I'll just go the other place. And Lot looked out over the plain and there was this great green valley over there. And he said, that's where I'm going to go. That looks great. I'm picking that. And that probably was a reasonable choice at the time. I think it was probably, like I said, a nice place to live. And he moved into this city. You know, perhaps they had once been a city like our nation, founded on solid principles of justice and equity, a city that prided itself on the merits of hard work and family, a city that believed in freedom and the rights of the individual to live a life of happiness. And maybe they had been a society years and years before the angels came, such a society, before the angels came to their town that night. Now, obviously, that's speculation. We don't have any biblical or scriptural evidence of that. But I find it hard to believe that Lot would move into a city that was, you know, going to subject his family to potential, you know, these, these mobs of, of immoral men that would come. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that was probably... I mean, that wouldn't, right? Why would he move there if it was like that at that time? I think that there was probably a progression in that city that probably started from small compromises and to where they ended up, to where we see him in the Scriptures today, again, being the epitome of this wicked, immoral city. You know, and really this is a pattern that we've seen over and over again in the history of the world. This isn't anything new. We've seen it in the great empires of Assyria and Babylon, of Greece and Rome. You know, even more modern times, the empires of Spain and Britain that were godly, God-fearing nations that went into the world with the Christian doctrines. And where are they today? You know, we see even the Central and South American empires of the Aztec and Mayans. Now, you know, again, we're just throwing empires out there. These weren't Christian nations by any means. And then finally we come to the nation of Israel. A nation founded, all these nations, founded based on these righteous ideals, such as justice and law and honesty and integrity, fidelity, love, family. And then by hard work and sacrifice, these people, they build this great society. The society becomes strong and prosperous and blessed. But then little by little, the ideals that once defined them become lost. You know, and it was funny. I was actually speaking to someone this morning just randomly about Costa Rica and how they're becoming more affluent and the materialism. And we see that's, that's oftentimes what we see is the beginning of the end. It's kind of this cycle. You know, that we often see. 
But then there comes a time when that empire is either destroyed or gets absorbed into something else or just disappears altogether. You know, we know for centuries, we didn't, they didn't even know that the Aztecs had ever existed. I mean, you know, we're finding these, you know, ruins hundreds and hundreds of, you know, years later, and they, oh, there was a wonderful, great society there. But think of the people that lived there during that time. They didn't think that was going to ever happen to them. You know, we think of, uh, you know, I saw some pictures of Pastor Sean's travels, you know, in the Colosseum. They went to the Colosseum. And it's in ruins today. But at the time, Rome was called the Eternal City. You know, they never thought there was going to come an end. That the money was pouring in. They had the slaves. They had everything they wanted. They had all this stuff. And, and little by little by little, these great ideals that even Rome was founded on, I said, of justice, of family, of fidelity, those things became, those things became lost. You know, and that's the pattern that really we've seen in our nation. You know, I think, you know, and Sean just, Pastor Sean, he just finished teaching through Revelation. says, we, and I know this, we are in the last days. Now, if these last days are 50 years or 100 years or 500 years, we don't know. But whatever it is, we are, we've seen a rapid acceleration in things that have happened in just the last five years. Some of you, look what we've seen in the last five years as far as what used to be wrong is right. What was right is now wrong in a really clear way. And that's a sign of the times that we're in. When we see domestic violence and terrorism on a weekly basis, these mass shootings, attacks, assassinations on our law enforcement, when we have legalized drugs when we see fraud and injustice at the highest levels of our government, we know we're at a crucial time in our country. And, you know, I ask, will we repent? Will we repent? Or we, will we, as a country, shake our fists at God as judgment rains down? And I pray we will repent. And I pray that as the darkness grows around us, that we will shine all the brighter. You know, I, in a way... And I don't agree with this at all, but, you know, the legalization of marijuana. Well, no, that's horrible. I do not agree with that or whatever. I think that's a terrible, bad decision. I don't tolerate it in any way, shape, or form. But there's a part of me that now says, you know what? I don't smoke pot just because, I mean, it's illegal anymore. You know what I mean? And there's a certain thing of, you know, the law almost provides this blanket for People would make excuses. Well, now it's legal, so I'm going to do it. No, it's legal, and I still don't do it because I serve the living God, and I don't want that to come between my relationship with him. And so it almost gives us this extra avenue into people's lives. Now, I'm, again, I think it should be illegal, so, and I'm sad that it is legal because we're going, to, you know, we're going to reap the benefits of that. And this is going to get more encouraging at some point, I promise. <laughs> Jesus encourages us. With these words, everybody's out there like, it's bad. We know it's bad. And it's probably going to get worse in that way. But, you know, man, what great opportunities we're going to have in this era. You know, I read, um, you know, one of my favorite reference books is The City of God, St. Augustine. You know, this um, you know, incredibly immense book, and it's not scripture. But, you know, he looked forward to our day that the saints that would live in the last days 
And he said, man, they're going to be super Christians because we see how bad the world's going to get. And obviously I'm paraphrasing because he uses incredible language and everything. But they, these saints that we looked back at in the early church, they looked forward to us because they looked at Scripture and they said, these guys, man, they're going to have to have great faith. They're going to have to have great perseverance to, to resist these things that are going to come in the last days. So what great opportunities we have by being alive. But it's easy to forget it's easy to be discouraged by what we see because so many of us, like myself, you know, I'm about to turn 48, we've seen the world change. You know, I think, what about those of us that are 88? How has the world changed since then? And not for the better. But Jesus writes in Luke 21, I mean, Jesus speaks, Luke wrote it, but uh, he says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, the, you know, these things he's referring to are these signs of the times of the end. It says, when these things happen, straighten up, look up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His words will not pass away. And if that's not a claim of divinity, I don't know what is. You know, that, there's a scripture in Isaiah that says the word of God will never pass away. Jesus himself is making himself God. My words. He doesn't say God. He says, my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And that's the encouragement, man. When we see these things going on, we look up. We know that our redemption draws near. We know that the Lord is coming back soon and that we know he loves us. He's going to take care of us. And that all these things we see around us should not weigh us down and distract us and make us fret and worry. They should make us encouraged. You know, it's almost this idea of like we're all stooped down with this weight of the world. And he says, when we, but when we see these things, we, you know, stand up and look up and look to the Lord because he's coming back soon. You know, I want to be reminded to stay awake this morning, to pray. Again, to not be weighed down by life, but to look up. And that's a word for me because, man, this life, I don't know. I'm, maybe it's my genetics or I'm going to blame it on my parenting because they're here today or whatever it is. But, you know, I, I mean, these things just tend to weigh you down and make you forget the great gifts that we have in our, in our Savior. So, you know, to wait, to wait, to wait for God, but not with this waiting like somebody mentioned the DMV to me this morning. That's a miserable kind of waiting. You know, to wait with joy and expectancy and hope. You know, the prophet Micah, I told you we'd get there at some point. Micah, again, he prophesied to the nation of Judah and Israel. The kingdom was split at this time. He, he prophesied to both kingdoms. But the kingdoms at this point were, were kind of at this crossroads, just like we find ourselves in as a country today. 
A time of trouble and wars. A time of compromise and immorality. And we're told a little bit about Micah and who he was. Um, he was from the small town of Morsheth, which is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah. We're told that the word of the Lord came to him during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which were these Judean kings. Okay, it's around 700 B.C., and that's the time of which he was ministering, that this word of the Lord came to him. Although he was from Judah, he also prophesied against the northern kingdom, using Samaria, which was the capital of that northern kingdom, kind of as a symbol. He would have been a contemporary, just to give you an idea biblically of where he, you know, he would have lived around the same time, a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea, and these other great prophets. And he even shares very similar, almost identical language in chapter 4 of Micah, that famous passage that we also read in Isaiah chapter 2. It says, he... Speaking of the Messiah, the anointed one. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that was a great word for the Israelites at this time because there was so much war going on around them. And God gave the exact same word to Isaiah as he did to Micah. And we see this unity that these prophets had with one another. That prophecy speaking of the day when Christ shall reign on the earth. You know, just in studying the, the, the name Micah, this prophet's name, itself means who is like God or who is like Yahweh. And that becomes kind of a pertinent theme in this book as we see our Lord is so different from the other gods this world chooses to serve. Truly there is none like him, Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus. He's utterly unique in all of human history. And, and, you know, a lot of people like to try to debate that. And they say, oh, you know, one God is the same as another God, or this God is, you know, they're all basically the same as long as you have your, you know, higher power or whatever. But that's not true. That's not true. Any scripture of the word will demonstrate that our God, the one true God, is truly unique. And it's kind of like what I said before, because he delights in steadfast love. And there's no other God like that that I've ever read about in any Eastern, you know, mythology, you know, nothing like that. These cruel pagan gods that demanded obedience, that de demanded your fear and respect. And they didn't offer love, and they didn't really expect love. They just expected you to do what they tell you to do, or we will wipe you out. And that's the idea that some people have about our God. That's the job that we have is to truly demonstrate and explain to people how different our God is from all the other gods that people are serving. You know, the book of Micah opens with this accusation against the people and the rulers and the religious leaders of Judah and Israel. And if we could turn there and just read that first. And it's uh, right here. Um, starting in verse um, 2 of chapter 1 of the book of Micah. He says, Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. 
And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down in a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. I'll just stop there in verse 7. So God opens up this word to Micah with this case, if you will, against Judah and against Israel. This case that they have sinned, that they've transgressed, that they've, that they've gone after these idols. And that kind of sets the tone of this book of Micah. Pronouncing coming judgments against his people for their sins, but finally offering the salvation that he wants to, you know, the whole point of this, the whole point of these things isn't just to point out problems, you know, that's the, that's what we got to get from these prophets. They're not just to, God doesn't give these guys words just to hammer on people and to tell them what they're doing wrong, is to get them to come to a place of repentance and salvation and forgiveness. So, but it starts out heavy, doesn't it? I mean, God comes at him and he says, I'm coming down off my throne. I'm going to tread down these things. I'm going to judge you. But it's always with the caveat, but that's not what I want to do. I want you to repent. You know, these sins that they were engaged in, sins of idolatry. And as we go through the book of Micah, as you go through it, sins of oppressing and taking advantage of one another for personal gain. They had these lying prophets, the sins of these lying prophets that would come to them and tell them things that they wanted to hear that would affirm all the sins that they were into. Sins of sorcery and divination, of materialism and avarice. But again, like I said, finally in chapter 7, God reveals his ultimate goal in making his case to begin with, that of forgiveness, of salvation. For those who are his, his remnant who seek him by faith. And all the way at the end of the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, God says, you know, um, Micah says, as part of this prophecy, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And as we saw at the beginning, God says, I'm going to come and tread down on your high places, on these idols that you have in your life. I'm also wanting to tread your sins underfoot and cast them into the depths of the sea. Has anybody lost anything in the ocean before? Now, you know, you can, you can put together a good crew and go down and maybe find that thing depending on where you dropped it. But for the most part, it's gone. It's gone. I've dropped stuff off boats and they are gone. And that's the idea that God wants us to, 
to, to get here, that God wants to tread them on our sins underfoot and to cast them into the deepest, blackest sea for them never to be retrieved again. So that, again, kind of sets the tone for the book of Micah, one of God presenting this really ironclad case against them. I mean, they have nothing to say against the, the, the judgment that God's saying. It's like, yeah, we're guilty. We're guilty. Everything that God's saying about these people is true throughout this book. He's saying also that he wants to remind them of the day when the Messiah will reign and put an end to all the trials of this life and of his eventual plan of redemption for those who are his. Now, as we talked about earlier, Micah is prophesying to these people during the reign of these three kings. He gives us this idea. It's Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Some of those names might be familiar to you, but... We'll just look real quick. I mean, Jotham, there's really not much information regarding him. We're told he was only 25 years old when his reign started, and then he reigned for 16 years. And all these things is in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. You can read the detailed accounts of these guys' reigns in their lives. He became father. The interesting thing about Jotham was he was the son of a godly king, Uzziah or Azariah. And this king was a great and prosperous king, Uzziah. But one day, he gets it into his head that's not enough. It's not enough just to be king. I want to be priest. And he goes into the temple, and he begins to perform the duties of the Levites, and they try to stop him. What are you doing in here? What are you doing in here? And he's in his pride and in the, in the wealth and success that he's so accustomed to, and I'll do whatever I want, and I'm, I can do this too. And God strikes him with leprosy. And they rush him out of the temple, and he is confined to a separate quarters for the rest of his reign, and his son Jotham has to kind of reign in proxy for him until he dies, he becomes king. So he had a godly father. He kind of made a mistake there. Uzziah was overall a very good king until that final... Man, we see that so often in the Bible, don't we? You start out good and end not so good. But it's apparent that Jotham, in the account, that he had this true and personal devotion to God. We see it's mentioned that he rebuilt this upper gate. And that's the gate of the temple that would connect the palace to the temple. And so we get this symbol of him wanting to reestablish this connection with God. Not to be the priest like his father mistakenly tried to take upon himself, but to have his reign connected with the law of God. He's also the only king at all at all in Scripture, that is, has nothing overtly negative said about him. He was a good and righteous king. This guy had this true and personal devotion to God. We see that clearly. But, all, but nevertheless, we do have kind of a passive kind of comment that's in the Scripture. In 2 Kings 15.35, it says, Nevertheless, this is during the reign of King Jotham, Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And you think, why is that in there? Why is that there? You know? And what was this Jotham himself being this good, godly king of which nothing is overtly negatively said about him? That's very unique in the scripture. We know he was a godly man. He loved God just from the, you know, inferring what's even not written. But why did the people continue in this idolatry? And you think, was this toleration on Jotham's part? Did he just tolerate it? You know, was it um, tradition? 
or habit? Did it, did it, was it something that he just felt was, he was unable to dispense with for whatever reason? We don't know. But the comments here that that was still going on in the kingdom, that although he was godly and he was a good king, that the people, their hearts were still not turned towards God. You know, I do see a certain parallel in my own family with this. You know, my grandfather, and I think really this is true, indicative of his generation, of the great generation that we hear about. He was a very righteous and godly man. He had a deep personal relationship with the, with the Lord, and I was influenced in my life kind of by this passive type of witness that I saw in his life. You know, that people knew he was honest and that he, he, you know, he was a church-going man. He was a God-fearing man. Everybody knew that about him. He wasn't perfect, but that was his witness. But I can also say, you know, his witness, it was clearly evident by how he lived his life his love for the Lord. But he never testified to us as grandchildren. He never shared what God was doing personally in his life. He never taught us God's word. And because of that, I think my family as a whole has suffered. You know, there's these high places that are still in place today in my extended family, my uncles, my, you know, my cousins, my thing. You know, despite his godly life, as soon as he passed away, it seemed like there was this fracturing that occurred, and it's never been the same before. I really don't even have a relationship with these people anymore. That there's these high places that stay. And I think that somewhat characterized his generation, where faith was a strictly private matter. You know, and I think, too, you know, our country was so different back then. I don't think it mattered as much, to be honest. You know, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I think... You know, it was kind of assumed everybody around you, you know, you went to church with all your friends. It was as, you know, most people were Christian in their thinking and in their, in their lives, you know, I mean, maybe not. I think there was definitely a, this strong moral ideal. But by taking this tact that he did, by keeping it so private and so personal that he did allow these high places to remain in my family, my extended family, things that were tolerated that maybe shouldn't be. We would pretend that this wasn't going on over here. We don't want to make a fuss, right? We're just all going to get along and love each other, and we're going to pretend that that never happened, regardless of how terrible it was. And, you know, there was some good things about that, but overall, I look at the family now, what's the fruit of that? What was the fruit of that? And maybe that was like Jotham. Maybe there was a spirit there of... You know, he was very pious and devout in his own life, but the high places remained. He wasn't effective in the community. He wasn't effective in the lives of his people as much as maybe he could have been. I don't know. We're just speculating. But, you know, I see that in our society today where, again, that generation, these things that were tolerated, those things have not gone away. They have exploded on our generation on the generation that we find ourselves in today. The next king that we're going to look at, Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is the flip side of Jotham. Whereas Jotham had nothing bad written about him directly, Ahaz had nothing good written about him at all. He is evil through and through, and his reign was one disaster upon another. He was only 20 years old when he became king. And like his father, he reigned for 16 years. 
He was an unmitigated idolater who were told he burned his own sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So we go from the high places remained to the king killing his own son, sacrificing him, we think probably to the god Molech, this horrible pagan deity that demanded such sacrifice. If you do this for me, I'll make you rich and powerful and happy and everything you want in life if you do this horrible act. And he bought into that. He was an economic fool, a military failure on every front. We're told in one battle he lost 120,000 men of valor. The best of the best, man. It'd be like our SEAL teams going in there and just getting destroyed. 120,000 men. He aligned himself with the kingdom of Assyria, one of the most cruel pagan kingdoms in the history of the world. He even robbed the temple of God to pay tribute to Assyria. They were attacked. The, you know, the kingdom of Judah was attacked and defeated by everybody. I mean, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Philistines. And this is and made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. You know, and we just see this until he's totally given over to it. It's just totally given over to it in every single way, aligning himself with the enemies of God, trying to merge the, worship, the true worship of Israel with this false worship because he thinks somehow it's going to benefit him. Now, interestingly, too, it was in the time of Ahaz's reign that the northern king of Israel was taken captive by Assyria, where Assyria came in and took all these Israelites as slaves and then repopulated the area. You know, we hear in Jesus' time, the Samaritans, and that's when that population change took place. But, you know, because Ahaz was in this place of idolatry, in this place of compromise, and in this place of wickedness, he wasn't there for them, was he? He was aligned with the enemies of God that were taking his brothers and sisters in the Lord prisoner. He was ineffective. He couldn't do anything to stop it. And so these people are dragged away to slavery under his reign. You know, the primary sin, I think, of Ahaz is being aligned with the enemies of God, wanting to be like the other nations around him. And the result of that was murder of his own children, defeat, weakness, poverty, failure. And so it will be with us when we, as God's children, seek to be like everyone else. There's this great passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And he goes on to say, we are the temple of God. What fellowship do we have with this? And we think, a lot of times we apply this in different ways, right? Marriage. That's a huge one. You know, you go to Christian marriage counseling, first thing they're going to say, now, is this brother or sister? Are they with the Lord? <laughs> and they're going to say, yeah, yeah, they're, they're okay, great. Because if they're not, you don't want to be unequally yoked. And we use that, and that's a great example. That's a perfect example of the use of that verse. Because there's no greater intimate relationship than marriage. And 
man, what a hardship you're bringing upon yourself if you're not equally yoked in your hearts and your faith towards Christ. But there's so many other ways that we're spiritually yoked to the world, enslaved by the world. You know, that yoke is an agricultural, a lot of you, I mean, I'm not a farmer, but, you know, you picture the two oxen with the wooden thing over top of their shoulders and they're pulling the plow. That's the yoke, you know, they've got the yoke on them. And we know it's ineffective if one's weak and one's strong or one's sick and one's healthy and they, you know, they'll pull and your field will get all messed up and everything, I assume. But to be unequally yoked doesn't just mean marriage. It doesn't just mean a business partnership. I've heard that applied in a business partnership. It means in your heart and in your mind and what, in how you live your life on a daily basis. You know, there is a great little proverb. I've been studying through Proverbs on my own time. Proverbs 25, 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. You get that picture? Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Yeah, I love that picture. You know, this idea of a mud puddle. That's what you are. I mean, nobody wants to drink that water, right? No one wants this polluted fountain. I saw another picture recently of this great, beautiful fountain in Rome. You know, it's aqua color with all the statues around it, and it looks great. But I'm not going to go up there and dip my cup in it and take a drink of that. That's some filthy water. It might look good, but it's polluted. (laughs) So... Anyway, you know, we think the problem is when we give way before the wicked, that's what we are. We're polluted. We're muddied. We're not clear. You can't see through it, you know? We, and the deception when we do that, the deception when we, when we uh, give way before the wicked, that means agreeing with things, tolerating certain things, not standing up for what's right, you know? When we try to do that, we think that we're making the water better, that somehow we're being more relevant, that we're being more understanding or compassionate. But we're not. You know, it's like walking up to the Cotter retaining pond and getting your glass and dipping it in there and drinking it up. Have you guys ever seen that from Google Earth or anything, what it looks like up there? (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, what I'm saying, it's not good. It's going to kill you. And that's what we think, that we're making the water better when we give way before the wicked. And that's such a temptation in this world that we're in today, because like I've taught before, if you stand up for what's right, you're going to get beat down for it. You're going to be persecuted for it. But if, and, and you know, sometimes it's just easier maybe not to make a big deal about that. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's easier just to, to go along. But when you do that, just know this, you are a muddied spring. You are a polluted fountain, and you're not going to nourish anybody. You know, our Lord wants us to have that fresh, clean, pure water of the gospel, not mixed with anything, not mixed with the philosophies of this world, not mixed with these humanistic beliefs or ideas or these things that are being pushed down our throats to say, you have to be this way, you have to tolerate this, you have to listen to that, you have to agree with this, or we're going to, you know, we're going to make you, we're going to make you miserable. 
And you think sometimes, again, you know, in my, own, in my own heart, you know, sometimes it's easier just not to say anything. You know, but when we do that, oftentimes we find ourselves in kind of a passive agreement with what's going on, and that muddies us. You know, Jesus said he wants our hearts to be like rivers of living water, right? He wants us to be pouring out that truth. And, uh, man, all that is is the, is the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised again. And that's what we see with Ahaz. He was so muddied. He was so compromised. He was so, I mean, and look how the nation suffered. You know, there's a lot of parallels. We could go down and, you know, and look at his reign and look at the, what's going on in our government today and say there's some, real, there's some real disturbing similarities that are going on there. The next king, the next king that we're going to talk about is Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah, again, like Jotham, but I think even maybe as a reaction to all the sin and depravity and hardship that he'd seen his country suffer, Hezekiah was a good king. And Hezekiah brought the nation back to God. But we even have a warning in his life. But I just want to read, let's see, this first few chapters that describe Hezekiah's reign, and that is in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 3 through 10. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also have shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. Actually, I'll stop there. So he gets it. He gets it. He looks around at the damage done by his father. And says, man, we've got to do something different. This isn't working. This is horrible. We're an object of horror. Look what's happened to us. That's the moment that I'm waiting for in our own country. When are people going to open their eyes and see what's happened? But it's happened so slowly in such small increments. that We find ourselves in this place, and believe me, it's going to keep going that way. There's people out there that think we're better off now. That think we're, man, we're moving forward. We're progressing We're in a better place. There's people that blinded and that deceived. But when it gets bad enough, like what Hezekiah had witnessed as a child, when he had seen his brothers, remember, who's his dad? Ahaz? He had seen his brothers, maybe his sisters. It says his sons. His sons burned in the fire as a sacrifice. You know? He knew that this was bad. 
And he wanted it to be better, and he knew that the only one true way to get there was by reinstituting the worship, the true worship and fellowship with the one true God. And what a great hope that is. You know, that's what we hope for our country, too. You know, Micah, again, you know, I think about this man, this prophet, this prophesying through the good times and the bad times. And he saw this nation ebb and flow. But what a hopeful moment this was. And man, he did so many great things for the Lord, Hezekiah. But we know later in his life, again, this pattern, the verse in Second Chronicles, it says, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. That's a warning for us again, man. He started out so great and so zealous. What we know is, is that God came to him and he said, it's time for you to pass on. It's time for you to die and to come be with me. And because his heart had become so attached to all the wealth and all the goods and all the things that God had given him, he begged God, just please, please remember how good I've been. Don't let me die. Don't let me die. Don't let me die. God said, okay, I'll grant you 15 more years. And during that 15 years, his heart fell away from the Lord, and he, he entertained these envoys from Babylon Again, this idolatrous and wicked nation that came to him, and he wanted to impress them. And he said, look at all my stuff. Look how great I am. And his heart became lifted up. And the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, and he says, who are those guys that just came to you? He says, oh, there's some dudes out from Babylon. I thought I'd show them around, show them a good time. He said, what would you show them? I showed them everything. I showed them all my goods, all my treasures and everything. And he says, everything's going to be taken from you. And your sons will be eunuchs and slaves to this foreign nation. And, and this is probably the most heartbreaking verse. I mean, one of the, there's many, but one of this verse is so heartbreaking to see where Hezekiah's heart is because he says, as long as it don't happen in my time, as long as it don't happen in my time, I'm good, I'm fine. I think, what, a, what happened to this guy? What happened to this young, zealous king that in the very first year of his reign, cleared out the filth of the temple, brought in the Levites, reinstituted this, tore down the high places. And he gets to this place where he doesn't care if his sons become eunuchs. I mean, are any of us as fathers, are any of us that cruel and callous? I think, why didn't he fall down on his face before God right then and ask for repentance? But his heart had turned away. His heart was too, too insulated, too attached to this life and to this world. You know, it's sickening. But you know, that, that is a spirit that has infiltrated our country today. That's why we have, you know, so much of what we have, the problems going on around us today. That idea of, as long as I'm good now, I don't care what comes after me. You know, the generations to come, as long as I'm comfortable and happy, who cares? You know, it, it translates from everything to the epidemic of children without fathers to the national debt, to the exodus of the youth from our churches. You know, that spirit of, as long as I'm okay in my time, I don't care what comes after me. You know, you guys have seen the bumper sticker. You know, I've already spent my kid's inheritance. <laughs> that's just a, yeah, that's a funny joke. I don't expect, you know, <laughs> but it's just like, just the spirit of that. Just like Hezekiah, who maybe started out this great righteous king who did so much good for God, but guys, man, it's, it's easy to start something. It's hard to finish something, right? And the blessing is in finishing. The blessing isn't in starting. Because we know that Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, 
Does anybody remember him? Says he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with innocent blood. That this man came up after Hezekiah. He rebelled against the Lord and went into idolatry even to a degree exceeding that of his grandfather Ahaz. And that that, that sins that he committed were unforgivable. You know? I mean, that's, and that's, that's the word for me. We have to continue in the love and admonition of the Lord. I mean, the stakes are so high. We can't be like Hezekiah and think it's just good for us. We have to think about those coming up behind us. And again, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. You know, I find myself in our country, in our, in our, you know, the way things go, that day by day by day by day goes. And sometimes it's hard to think about anybody other than yourself and your own, you know, your own thing that you got going on. But guys, the stakes are just too high. You know, we are, I think, our, our country's last hope. Those, not just in this room, thankfully, but the national church, those true remnant, we're our last hope for our country. What else is there? There isn't anything else. And if we are only worried about our age, our country truly, and our children, I mean, you know? So Micah concludes his prophecy like this. He says, again, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I like how it says he will. He will. And then it says you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Guys, there is no other God like our God. Isaiah, again, a contemporary of Micah, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And that's got to be our message today. You know, as we look back again, what was Micah getting across to these people? What kind of time was he, was he you know, delivering these prophecies? It's a time like our time. We've got to be reminded by these, the lives of these kings, the times we see, we don't allow the high places to remain. Not trying to be like the world or to compromise the power of the gospel in some misguided attempt to be relevant. Not becoming so selfish and proud that we give our hearts to the things of this life. You know, we've got to be reminded of men like Micah, like Isaiah, like Amos and Hosea that stood against the tide that stood against the tide, that got this word from the Lord, and they just spoke it. You know, I think of the apostles and the disciples of the New Testament. You know, the faithful believers that have handed down our faith to us after all these centuries, who had the courage and the faith to speak the truth, to hear the truth, and to live the truth. You know, I pray that we could be those good and faithful servants and to continue in that forgiveness and that grace and eternal life. I pray that that's the message that we have to give to people today. And again, you know, this is a word to me just as much. I didn't even know I was going to teach on like two days ago. And I just feel like, you know, we're at this place. You know, again, you turn on the TV. Man, you know, God has got such a great opportunity for us. But what a hard time that we find ourselves in in other ways. So we are going to have prayer this morning. Um, the worship team wants to come up. We're going to do a couple other songs. And I just wanted to be reminded today, if the guys wanted to 
get all geared up for that. You know, these guys up here that are praying, they're not praying necessarily for you. They're praying with you. You know, we've all gone through the exact same things that you're going through. Whether you need to come and confess something, whether you need to come and pray for health or, or healing or something like that, but, you know, we're not up here and you guys down here. I mean, we're all in this together. So I want you to look at them as, you know, give them, you know, if there's something that God's put on your heart this morning, if there's someone else you want to pray for, let us pray with you in that. So I'll pray and then we can uh, get the... Uh, are you coming up? Okay. All right, I'll pray and we'll get the songs going and then you guys can come up. So, Father, again, we just come to you this morning and, and uh, we're just humbled by you, Lord. Lord, there is no other God like you, a God that is so quick to forgive. All we, just, we just have to turn slightly towards you and you're right there to meet us. I pray let us be lights in this world Again, to live for your truth, to speak your truth, to not become muddied or polluted by compromise or by the the false ideals of this world. And Lord, I pray just let us love you more than anything else in this world. Let us love our friends and our families and and, uh, even our enemies as you tell us, Lord. To be giving of ourselves and not taking. And uh, we just thank you that we can come to you this morning as a body. And again, we offer you our praise and our worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, the Lord doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below in you
Father, we thank you so much, God, for what you have done for us, Lord, for who you are, and we know you are coming back, and we know you have great, mighty plans for us, God, and we praise you for that. So I just ask, Lord, as we leave this place, that we can be a light in the world, Lord, that needs to see you, that we can be hope for the hopeless, and we don't forget, God, where our place is and what your word says and, Lord, where your glory lies. So I just praise you for this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed week.